Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, one genre of books that attracts a huge amount of attention is the memoir written by a retired policeman. Such books often tend to include the kind of details of policing, I suppose, and crime and criminals that generally don't emerge in the everyday coverage of these things. A book just published that falls into that category is written by retired Detective Chief Superintendent John O'Brien. A Question of Honour, Politics and Policing, The Inside Story. That's the title of the book and during these lockdown times it's available from John's website www.contrarian.ie and will hopefully be in the shops if we have any shops to go to in the run-up to Christmas. John spent 38 years in Ungarda Shikana during times that included the spillover of the troubles from the north and the emergence of what we know as gangland crime. His experience also awoke in him a major interest in the interface of politics and policing. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mick. Thank you very much. John, we'll come to your own career in a moment. But first of all, the title of your book, I think it's quite intriguing, Politics and Policing. I suppose in in a functioning democracy, one might think that there should be no connection really between the two. But that's not how it works, is it? No, and that's actually a great point. But I, I did study about 20 years ago in the University of Leicester. And one of the things we looked at was comparative policing systems and the relationship between the police and, and, uh, and, and government. And because policing is about the exercise of power, which relates to freedom, relates to people's right to liberty, it's inevitably, when you look at it on the wider, on the wider scope, it's an inevitably something that politics is directly involved with and probably should be involved with. It's often denied by politicians that they have such a political direct involvement in the, in the policing of the state. Look, I've looked at, from I guess 1970, each um, decade right up to the present day, and every single decade emphasises the degree of political control and contact. And some of the political control is good, and some of it is not. And by the way, it comes both, or has come both from the north, and that may seem surprising to some of our listeners, as well as the south. So it's a well-established situation over the wide continuum of, of policing. I started out to write a memoir, which I thought would be a collection of stories, which is very familiar to this kind of genre, but actually changed it changed itself into the influence of policing. And what we wind up with is a unique living history of the guards and their relationship with the political system over, would you believe it, 50 years. I find it hard to believe that myself. Those of us of a certain vintage, at the very least, our notion of the interference of... Um, Politics and policing goes back to things like the old anecdote. I think it was actually told in some jest on the Late Late Show one night by Charlie Hawhey or Brian Lennon. One, but they were talking about the two of them about drinking after hours in the place, and the guard comes in doing his job, trying to shut up shop, and he's told, "Do you want a pint or a transfer?" Now, the interesting thing there to me is that was told in a jocose way 
But what you're talking about is complete abuse of power. I'd say we're long past that kind of uh, place now, one would hope, in these days. Well, yes, Mick, and there's a touch of Hall's Pictorial Weekly about the, that interchange. Uh, if anyone remembers Hall's Pictorial Weekly, you know, it's the, the parochial stuff. Mind you, it surfaced during the the ministership of Sean Darty in the 1980s and with a good sergeant down there where he was offered that kind of uh, choice. But what I'm really talking about is more at the strategic uh, level, which is the basic control direction of the police force. And that is in the 2005 Michael McDowell Act, which was seen as being the reforming act. It is now institutionalized in that act. And indeed, no less an authority than Judge Finley said that the Garda Act of 2005 does not provide, at least not expressly, for the operation and independence of the Garda Shikana. Now, that is one hell of a big mouthful. It is. And I suppose in that vein, thing that I just thought of there, it arose there recently in relation to the the lockdown and the when we were moving into this level five or just before it, when the government decided that they would give extra powers to the Gardaí in terms of policing the lockdown. I recall a press conference the Commissioner Drew Harris gave and to my mind anyway, he seemed, he didn't appear too comfortable with these new powers and when he was asked about it, he said something to the effect that he was a public servant and do what he was told. Is there something in that? Does that strike you as the correct relationship there should be there between the political master and, and the commissioner of the Gardaí? Well, I, I actually find that uh, exchange quite extraordinary. Now, I know it happened at the end of a press conference and one could say maybe it was an off-the-cuff remark. But what he said was, and which I think is very important, at least his reporter is saying by, uh, by PAs, I'll do as I'm told, having first indicated over maybe the last month that he didn't favour the allocation of specific powers in relation to the COVID emergency. And when he was asked if he supported the measures, he had a rather strange answer to my ears at any rate. The good thing is that the legislation confirms this. And he goes on to say, I'm a civil servant, a good and faithful servant, and I will do as I'm told. Now, technically, he's not a civil servant, he's a public servant, but... I can't think of any Garda commissioner in my lifetime, and uh, despite maybe many other failings, who would ever address a relationship, at least publicly, uh, with government in those terms. It's an extraordinary statement, and it doesn't speak to a professional understanding of a professional relationship, but it does underline the point I made already, that the political control of the Garda organisation by virtue of the 2005 Act Actually, Drew Harris is probably reinforcing that that is his understanding as well. Yeah, I suppose to that extent he's, he's subject to the law like everybody and he, he's just being very public about it. John, your own career, as you said, 38 years, you, you had, I don't know if it's the correct way to put it, but a front row seat in terms of huge upheaval in the state. And just going through a question of honour the book, I noticed there early on, you were very much present during the uh, Dublin bombing in December 1972. This was a night that basically the Dáil was going to debate emergency powers and whether new powers would be given to the Gardaí in tackling what was the paramilitary activity spilling over from the north. You were in the centre of Dublin that night. I was, Mick, and, and the story on that is that there's a very acute political context to it. Fianna Fáil were in government at that stage 
Uh, and of course, they had gone through the 1970 arms crisis situation, government ministers fired. And also, of course, the murder of uh, Gather Richard Fallon, April 3rd, 1970, an escalating range of uh, bank raids and various other disorders in the country. It was also the year of the highest, believe it or not, road deaths in the Republic, which was over 600, and also the year of terrorist deaths in the North, which was over 400. So it was a very dangerous year. And in response to that, the government decided that they were going to amend the Offences Against the State Act to introduce new powers directly to deal with the threat posed by what was then the emerging provisional IRA. Now, that's the long, the long intro, but I was on my way from Drumcondra, where I lived, down to the Dáil, which was in the, the last stages of, of um, passing this bit of legislation. I was driving down Gardiner Street, Mick, and I came to the junction of Talbot Street, and the, the, uh, the lights were red, and I was driving my little HA Viva, probably not make much sense to those of these as a little box viva, a little fragile car. And I was sitting there with very few about because there was a lot of tension in the city because of what was going on previous demonstrations. And just as I was sitting there, how can I describe it, Make It's like the air exploded around me, a tremendous explosion. The lights changed. I drove round by the Custom House and Liberty Hall uh, is on your right when you come from that side. And all the windows in Liberty Hall had been blown out. There was a half a dozen cars uh, which clearly had been bombed and they were in flames. Uh, I drove over the bridge and up to uh, Linster House or to Kildare Street and I joined some of my compatriots who were already on protection duty there because counter demonstrations were, were obviously expected for, for, for that particular night. And I had no sooner taken up uh, my position with the colleagues when another bomb exploded in Marlborough Street. Now, the, 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 the effect of that in political terms, which I think is very interesting and kind of makes the point I was making in the title, was that the legislation which had been opposed strenuously by Fine Gael and by some members of Fianna Fáil was passed within the hour. And that is a very salutary lesson in terms of the influence of the northern situation on southern uh, politics. Also on us, and by the way, just by an anecdote, uh, that particular night I was travelling on my own because I had uh, appeared, would you believe it, on Garda Patrol or the previous version of it in RTE that night, and that's the reason I was on my own. All but for, I guess, 20 seconds, Mick, I would have been directly at Liberty Hall when that bomb exploded. Jeez, we'll have to, we'll have to seek out the old archive footage of you on Garda Patrol 1972, John. But, I mean, you know, on one level, when you think about what you're, you're saying there, and I, I've seen it written before but you being a witness to it effectively the people who let off those bombs recklessly uh, in, in endangering life and what have you in the city centre were doing so in order to ensure that the democratic process went the way they wanted it in that vote in the Dáil that night Unmistakably so because the question you always ask yourself in this situation or about any situation who benefits Quo bono and by the way, Mick, within a very short time, like a, a week or so, a Garda colluder who had been colluding with the, uh, with the British security services, uh, Patrick Crinion, was arrested, as was a spy called Wyman. So there was a lots of moving parts, and certainly I have no doubt in my mind that influences beyond the immediate southern political situation were responsible for the car bombs on December 1st, 1972, because it achieved an objective of getting the, the, the Dáil deputies to change their mind, even they had trenchantly opposed the passing of that legislation. And one Patrick Coney was one of those most strongly opposed to passing that legislation, and he was shortly to become the Minister for Justice. 
Right, and two years later, John, then there was this other major um, bombing attack on Dublin and on Monaghan, say the Dublin-Monaghan bombs. That has always been a source of controversy and speculation. And I think you believe that there is evidence that there may have been involvement there um, from on the British military side. Well, it is. The Dublin Monaghan bombings, which happened on Friday the 17th of May 1974, was the single biggest debt uh, total in the Republic for the entire troops, and actually in the entire island, 34 people were killed. And again, the backdrop to that one, Mick, is the fact that there was an Ulster workers' strike in the north against the Sunningdale Agreement, which was the first attempt at power sharing in the north. And there was huge unionist and loyalist opposition to it. Now, without going down the long road on the analysis, is there's one very simple capacity, very simple fact in this is that the Ulster loyalists did not have the technical capacity to explode four bombs in the centre of Dublin, uh, in the centre of Dublin within two minutes of each other. They just simply didn't have that technical uh, capacity. Uh, They didn't have it before and they didn't have it since. And by the way, that was not just John O'Brien's opinion, it's the, the independent opinion of British EOD or explosive officers who gave uh, evidence to the Barden inquiry many, many years uh, later. So that's the key part of it. And again, of course, the Sunningdale Agreement then uh, imploded in the north and things went back to the northern way of doing things. So, But the last point I want to make about this is every year on the anniversary of the 17th of May, there's the usual... Um, government pronouncements of different parties. We are now going to ask the British to produce all of the information that they have. Uh, but on that year, twice at the intergovernmental level, at Prime Minister and Taoiseach level, the British told the Irish Taoiseach, British Prime Minister, we know who committed the bombings and we have interned them in the north. Now, there is no record anywhere in the for about 20 years, 19 years to be exact, that the southern government did anything about that. So that's and that's what that's all of that information is the, in, in the Barron report of the of the two thousands. It's there. To so, sorry, John. Publicly, you're saying that at ministerial and prime minister level, the Irish government were told by the British that we know who did it and we've interned them, and that fact itself was not known till over twenty years later. Well, indeed, probably a little bit longer, but twenty plus twenty years plus, it came out in the Barron. Report. Judge Barden had been commissioned to do a report on the Dublin and Monaghan bombings. And when he went through the archive search, he found the government papers that confirmed, and they're mentioned in the book, uh, confirmed that those ministerial meetings, intergovernmental prime minister meetings had taken place. And on, in July and I think of August, if I remember correctly, of uh, 1974, the British prime minister told the Irish Taoiseach and officials, we know who committed the, uh, the the bombings and they are interned in the north. And the point I made earlier on, self-evidently, is nothing happened officially. Yet every on the southern side, yet every year you hear the same remark: we are appealing to the British to uh, to produce the information so that justice may be done to the thirty-four to the families of the thirty-four people who were killed. Yeah, it's the way politics goes, and it's it's always the fact that we find out these things twenty and even thirty years often in terms of the release of papers later as to whether. Um, Politicians of the day were talking out of both sides of their mouth. Back at ground level, John, to put it that way, you worked up around the border and I saw you. there was an incident um, 1979 
uh, one Friday evening you're coming out of Castle Blaney looking forward to the weekend County Monaghan yeah I, I was with a good colleague of mine I was, I was a young sergeant uh, in Hackbots Cross uh, February 1979 it was just coming into the weekend and the two of us were uh, in, uh, in uniform on patrol in the border areas which was what you did unarmed um, and we got a call that wasn't unusual to the effect that uh, that a uh, there had been an incident in Castle Blay or in, in uh, Cross Midland, and a car has, was now being followed by another patrol car from Castle Blaney heading in our direction. We were on the on the Dundalk to Castle Blaney Road. And uh, we did what we always did in those days, which was to uh, go and see an intercept. And uh, we went up towards uh, Cross, it's known as McShane's Cross, it's just at the border with the concession road that runs through just that little bit of uh, South Armagh, and we went down a side road and in a country lane. Now, I'm a country boy and I'm kind of familiar with the, what country lanes look like, and there we found the car that had been used in the, or apparently used in the north, it had been hand-painted, a Cortina car that had been uh, stolen a couple of days previously on the concession road. So while we were waiting for armed support to arrive, and we could actually see two British helicopters on the sky, literally within our within our view, uh, I said to one of the one of my colleagues, a young guard from Castle Blaney, I see a, a farmhouse over there. Uh, let's go and check that out. Well, we left our colleagues with the with the car while the, waiting for armed support. So we went through two fields, and this is January. We're wearing our great coats. You don't see those anymore. Clear blue sky day, a bit like the uh, the day you see in Washington for an inauguration. And we went into the haggard at the back of this farmhouse and a guy jumped out with a, with a long gun. Um, and he saw us and we saw him. And now this is instantaneous, Mick. And when he saw us, he turned and he ran. And by the way, he had another colleague with him and they were in battle dress uh, type gear. And we turned, Mick, and ran after them. Now, this is despite the fact that we didn't have no weapons other than a little baton of about a foot and down the side of our leg and in order to run faster to catch them we threw off our greatcoats and anything else we could throw off in order to catch them and as we pursued them through the fields we could still see the helicopters in the sky uh, so we said look somebody has to be able to see us you know this is so obvious it's a beautiful clear day and at a particular point a provo and i'm assuming it was a provo turned around and he fired a shot at the Young guard in front of me and shot at me and I took a big mouthful of bog earth. There was either Armagh earth or county <laughs> load earth and you suddenly realise that your fate rested in the hands of somebody who could have killed you in the spot. I watched him. I sent my colleague back to brief our friends back to what was happening. I watched him for a while and followed them kind of parallel and they went in under, believe it or not, make a haycock in the north. Obviously somebody hadn't been, um, hadn't been high in the husbandry because they were obviously exhausted. Now, while we were, to make a long story short, we found out a short time later they had been discarding their weapons in a dry stone ditch, and they had discarded um, they had discarded an armalite and and several magazines. And if we had been two seconds later, the both of them would have been disarmed, and there would have been a different outcome. But it does many many guards face that kind of situation on the border, Mick, and that's kind of a big big issue with us because we didn't have instructions, we didn't have recognition for it. It's just something that we did. But we assumed it was something that we should do. One element to it is, you're talking 79, by then a number of guards um, in the Republic had been shot dead by uh, various terrorists or paramilitaries. Uh, you're in a scenario whereby, as you say, you're unarmed, you're a uniformed guard. Immediately when you got that call, 
it must have occurred to you or you must, there was, you must have known there was a very high possibility that these individuals would be armed and prepared to use guns. And you kept chasing them. I mean, it's a very, it's a very uneven fight, to put it one way. To put it another way, is it reckless? in that scenario or is it that you just act on instinct and don't think about those kind of things in the moment? I think, uh, Mick, you're probably right in the sense that it's, it's instinctive. You know, you're wearing the uniform, you have a job to do, there's something egregious has happened, it's your job to respond to it. I know they say about law enforcement agencies, you should run towards trouble, not away from it now. Again, of course, in the cold light of day, and I had a young wife and three young children at the stage, it was foolhardy in the extreme to do what we did. Uh, you know, and it speaks to a an instant uh, second where you make up your mind to do it. Uh, I suppose sublimely at the back of our mind, we were aware that the provost had a green book requirement that they didn't engage the free state forces as they saw it. But of course, that was uh, that was soon to be disabused in many other circumstances. At that stage, Michael Clarkin had been blown up and uh, Gary Hinch in Port Darlington, uh, when again another version of emergency power legislation was being passed in Dublin, this time by the provost, clearly. Um, and Michael Reynolds had been killed by other elements in Dublin. So, but it, as you say, Mick, it is not something for reflection. But my key point, I think, looking at back, is we didn't have an SOP, a standard operating procedure, which said uh, to O'Brien and your good friend, when you're there, this is what you do. You were very much on your own instinctive response. You knew that what they were doing was illegal and your basic instinct was was to deal with that, but it wasn't uh, a well-founded, uh, it wasn't a well-founded response in the cold light of day. Okay, and uh, another element, John, of course, you were involved in uh, during, at, at the height of your tenure in the force was the emergence of gangland crime and serious criminals, particularly coming out of Dublin, but also the, the other cities in the state. And you, in the book, you have mentioned of this individual, Dublin Jimmy, and there's some uh, contemporary resonance there. This was a criminal in Dublin, and uh, he was up on, I think it was robbery charges in the circuit court, and it was your, you were representing the state there, and, and you objected to his bail and despite your objections and I think it was the president of the circuit court was presiding he got bail what happened after that? Yeah that's quite an extraordinary case Uh, the euphemism we've used for the name is Dublin Jimmy Uh, and he had come from a family in North County Dublin and he was a very experienced he was a young guy but a big strong young guy a big strong young man six foot three or four and tough to, uh, to boot and he'd been involved in ringing vehicles and lorries, trucks, that kind of thing, you know, stealing them and then changing the plates and stuff and so on. And I had, through, uh, uh, through various contexts, I discovered what was going on and I had taken prosecutions against him and what have you. And by the same, same t- token, Mick, uh, my good wife was at home when I was in Knights and she get, kept getting calls uh, when I was in Knights to say things like, and I'm going to say it deliberately, tell that fucker he's dead. Uh, so there was a, quite a resonance to... Uh, to that to, was to your home, to, to your wife? Yeah, to my wife. To your I, home address? Yeah, home phone number. Now, he, I was local and he was local, if you know what I mean. So he knew where I lived. But he was also being tipped off by two guards, uh, which I discovered later, who had been facilitating a lot of his criminal enterprise. And I discovered their names and they were subsequently dealt with appropriately under discipline and other... In other circumstances, but to go back to the court, he uh, he was in Dublin and it was coming up to Christmas, and Judge Rowe was sitting on the bench, and he wouldn't make a decision on the bail, so he brought him out to Trim Circuit Court, which was maybe like a couple of days later, and in Trim, which was a 
totally unprecedented thing to do. He gave Jimmy uh, bail and then Jimmy went on a rampage of robbing and stealing uh, and together with some very good colleagues, they put together a small team and eventually we uh, we succeeded in getting him out of the, the jurisdiction, if not in. He was eventually disqualified for 25 years. He had no mobility within our territory, so he actually moved north. And when he became involved, or allegedly involved, in 2019 on the affairs on the border, uh, he had actually started that many years earlier in the mid-80s. He had established a base up at near Kiri, then in the UK, and uh, it is extraordinary that he got that uh, that he got that kind of uh, latitude from the judge. But also, I should tell you, a member of his family took a private prosecution against me, and I was suspended for a day while I had to answer a criminal charge or a civil charge, not by the state but by by that person in in court. And I can tell you something: I got very little comfort from the official guard organization at the time. Some good colleagues stood by me, and I was as innocent as as the driven snow. So there are hard lessons to be learned, but if you're a guard, in some ways, you have to accept, you know, the rough with the smooth. I had a wonderful time in the guards, and I'm not cribbing and crying about it, but look, that, this is cold light of day stuff, Morris McCabe stuff, it's very close on. And just for clarity, that individual, we're talking about Dublin, Jimmy is the same person who I think it was last year when Gar- Gardy, in conjunction with uh, British police, were investigating the abduction of Kevin Lunny, the executive with um, Quinn Insurance, or what was Quinn Insurance. This is the man who was being arrested in the UK, and in the course of the arrest, he died of a heart attack or something. That was the same individual, and that's how he ended his 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 um his time with that kind of enterprise. Exactly, John. Another another very interesting aspect of your career was you were involved in the witness protection program, and I know aspects of that are probably covered by the Official Secrets Act, but if we could talk in somewhat general terms, but as well, and in, there was one individual, you mentioned him, this guy, uh, he was known as Odd Job. Yeah, you're right, of course, the, the witness protection program or the witness security program, as it's called within the organisation, within the guard organisation, is the program to deal to protect witnesses. Odd job was a controversial and enigmatic guy who, uh, by his own admission, stole cars for the real IRA and worked hand in glove with, uh, with uh, members of the Gardaí-Shikán in that enterprise. Basically, he was operating more as an agent than a witness. And eventually, his identity, and wrongly and egregiously uh, wrongly, was disclosed in court papers involving another defendant, and his identity became compromised. And at that stage, the guards were faced with the, the dilemma because it was clearly a guard a mistake to, dis, to disclose his identity. There are other issues about whether or not he should have been doing what he was doing and stuff and so on. And his identity was uh, disclosed, and then he became a subject that was, um, how could I put it, ingested into the witness program, even though in actual fact he wasn't uh, a witness. But maybe I should just say, Mick, by way of clarity, the witness program came about following the murder of, uh, of your colleague Veronica Gearden in June of uh, 1996. There, there had never been a program up to that point, uh, so it was a very welcome addition to the armory for, for, uh, for the state in dealing with criminals, because clearly these people, right up to the current day, Will kill and do anything to preserve their own their own hegemony, you know. So that was necessary. And kind of in popular legend, John, to some extent, people have this notion that someone goes into a witness protection program. And admittedly, now we, most of this thing we see through the lens of what happens in in the likes of uh, American, perhaps the UK to a lesser extent. But in popular sort of um, 
culture, you know, there's a couple of things about it. One is that um, they, they they end up having a life of relative luxury compared to what perhaps they may have been living in prior to um, being coming to the attention of, of, of a police force. And I think I'm more interested in myself in general terms, in your experience, and I'm not just talking about any case you did with yourself, but any research you did, do people who go into the witness protection programme who were involved in crime manage to go straight under these new circumstances and being anonymous and what have you? Yeah, it's an interesting contrast. I mean, the two things that you have to consider when somebody is going into the programme is eligibility. And that is, I mean, that they have, they have testimony to offer that can't be found any other way that will lead to the conviction of a very serious criminal. So eligibility is the first criteria. But the other one, which is the one that really you're talking about, Mick, is suitability. In other words, can they hack it? Because when you go into the witness protection program, and if that involves relocation, as it would from Ireland, if there's a serious threat to your to your life, you have to live under a new legend, which is a new name, a new address. Uh, you have to be furnished with all of the papers that supports that new position. Probably something like fourteen key document uh, uh, document changes. You also have to be acceptable to the law enforcement or a reciprocal organisation in another country. So it's a big ask. Some people will survive. But the basic criteria is that if you go through that system, and many people have gone through it, you have to be in a position basically to achieve what we call self-sufficiency in about five years. In other words, make your own way and do your new identity in a totally different horizon. And you are only entitled to a like-for-like material advantage, if you want to call it that. You will not be handed a bonus of money and said, there you go, you're a wonderful person, this is a reward. But that is often a contended thing between uh, the representatives of these people and the state. And sometimes the state has been rather lax in, 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 in applying that. But basically, relocation is always away from Ireland, like for like. Five years, you should be self-sufficient. And uh, quite a few have managed to do that. And quite some more, based on the suitability, have no ability to do that. Because when you take them from the vicinity of the local chip shop, they're lost and they can't do it. And what happens then, John? I mean, I'm thinking in particular, um, you know, the movie Goodfellas, who was based on, I think it was Henry Hill, who was the the guy who um, who ratted out the rest of them in the mafia. And he was off at the end of the movie. You see him, he says, I'm living here. I have to do my own work. You know what I mean? And he is to live an ordinary life. In real life, my recollection, that guy got involved somewhere on the west coast of the States in drug dealing while he was under the witness protection programme. And I'm just wondering... Those that might slip back into crime, do they get a second chance? Because I suppose you still have responsibility for their safety and that they could be killed by the original people they were involved with. Or what, what happens in a situation like that? Well, it's a kind of simple enough situation, Mickey, is that if they conform with the terms of the programme, they receive all of the, the benefits of that. If they step outside of that, either criminally or, or otherwise, then they revert back to the getting the same protection as you and I get in the state. In other words, yes, of course, the police force are required to... Uh, to protect them, but not in a special way, because frankly, it's impossible to uh, to protect them in a special way. So they lose the, the protection of the program, but they don't lose the protection of the state. And many of these are unreconstructed criminals, which quite happily, their basic instinct is to get involved in crime. But remember, many of these people have families who have never committed a crime and who are the real victims in the situation, apart from the initial encounter that, that gave rise to the situation. So, But effectively, they're entitled to the protection of the state, but no more than you and I. And often a mistake is made 
by compromising on that with these particular individuals because they will exploit that advantage to the extreme. They'll sell their stories, they'll peddle their wares, they'll do their stuff. But essentially, that's the kind of the breakdown. Keep with the rules when you're in. If you step outside the rules, you're back getting the same protection, technically at any rate, as you and I are, should be got under our own, you know, under our own regime. Yeah, and it'll be hard to disagree with that. Um, we've seen, John, over the years, a uh, number of tribunals in relation to the Gardaí, and two in particular, and you touch on these in the book, and they've bought you, you I think you've relatively strong opinions on them. One is uh, Morris, which, just for people who may not remember, Morris is the tribunal that was set up in response to a series of controversies in Donegal involving various guards at various levels within the force, and there was a whole range of shenanigans that went on up there, and tribunal went on for years, overseen by judge, a retired judge, Frederick Morris. The other one is the Smithix Tribunal, which was overseen by, quite obviously, Judge Smithix, and this involved an investigation into whether or not there was collusion by a member of the Gardaí with the Provisional IRA or some other paramilitary organisation. You uh, you were a close observer in both of those, John, I think you'd, you'd, you'd a slight walk-on role in Smithix, had you? Uh, well, you had, uh, I suppose myself and two colleagues ingested ourselves into Smithix at a later stage. But to, to take the point that you made about the two tribunals, uh, the uh, without getting before I get into any details, and we obviously can't re re litigate the whole lot now; it would be impossible. But in relation to Judge Morris, I think his approach was largely, if not exclusively, evidence based. So he, the conclusions that he made, you can have good confidence that they were soundly based. No, you can argue around the edges. Was he too hard on one or too light on the other? But as a tribunal exercise, it was evidence based, and it would and does stand the test of time on that basis. We would have different views as to how he dealt with some uh, some guardies. Some we would probably think a little bit unfairly and more is not so, uh, and more, is ve- more very appropriately. But he is evidence-based. That's the first classic difference, mate. In relation to Judge Smithick, it is exactly the opposite of that. Judge Smithick, which was into the murders of Chief Superintendent Harry uh, uh, Breen and uh, Superintendent yes. Bob Buchanan in 1989. It didn't start until 2005. It came about because of the Western Park Agreement, which was basically an agreement between the East-West governments that there should be a some mechanism of dealing with legacy issues of collusion north and south. And we in the South were quite definitely manipulated into that situation, and probably for the right reasons, because we thought we were getting inquiries into the Pat Finucane murder in the North and various other atrocities. It didn't turn out like that. But to go back to Judge Smithick, the short of it is that Smithick, in my view, is not evidence-based. It had a huge uh, connection with the British, uh, British agents who were operating within the IRA, uh, it paid enormous amount of money has been paid. And at the end of the day, not a single fact, not a single salient fact was fine to prove any element of collusion. But the point I'd like to share with our listeners is that there were two key people, uh, probably three, but let's concentrate on two. There was a, uh, Freddie Scapatici, who was a member of the Provisional IRA's Nutting Squad. For clarity, this is the squad that the IRA that they used when someone they decided was an informer, they were taken in by... Scapatici, they were more often than not tortured and then shot to death, most likely. That is exactly right. And Scapatici had been a British Army agent for something like close on 20 years. 
he denies that just for clarity, but I think there's a, a general belief. Yeah, His lawyers, now he didn't give evidence to Smithy, but he was represented right throughout. His lawyers were paid by this state a sum of €382,270 to prove that he wasn't Skepikichi or he wasn't an agent for the British state. And you just leave that stand there for the minute. Yeah. <laughs> Speaks volumes. €382,270 these taxpayers of this country pay to his lawyers to prove that he wasn't an agent of the British army. Incidentally, his, 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 that and that claim has no credibility. The other guy is even more interesting. He is a guy uh, with the first with the real name of Peter Keeley, but he was largely addressed before the, the tribunal as Kevin Fulton. Now again, his lawyers were paid four hundred and fifty-six thousand six hundred and forty-five euro, uh, and I repeat that four hundred and fifty-six thousand six hundred and forty-five euro for their services to the tribunal. Kevin Fulton was a a absolute agent of the British intelligence services. He had been inducted into the British Army in 79. After a short while, he was asked to formally resign so he could uh, assume a different persona, and he became an operator for them in the Newry, South Down area and then into Dundalk. He's written a book, I think, about his experiences. <laughs> he certainly has, and he's written two books about his experience. He, he was seen by Judge Smitty as a person of credibility because the good judge said, I sat beside him for three days or he sat beside me for three days and I was very impressed with his truthfulness. Now, this guy, Kevin Fulton Peter Keeley, had walked beside killers. He had been present at killings. He had been present at the abduction of Tom Oliver. He had, he had been interviewed by Scapatici in his role as the enforcer for the IRA from a security point of view. Did the good judge think that he could absolutely penetrate the persona of this individual who had lived with death day in, day out for a long number of years and was demonstrating... Yeah, yeah, John, but to, 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 to be fair, and I take your point and I, I, I take that there are some strong opinions within the Gardaí about aspects of this, but there's no question, there's no suggestion that Judge Smithix wasn't but acting in good faith and did a report within the constraints of that were there to the very best of his ability. And it should also be said that it was a report that was accepted by the government, even though, understandably, there are people involved who um, who would definitely have issues around it. I mean, accept that without a doubt. Ah, yeah, McKenna, and I have no problem that people would have a different view on it. But the, the bottom line is I have, I think, scientifically took it apart in the in the book in a very, probably 40 or 50 Yeah, it is in fairness, it is. And, and I, I think it's a cracking read, but in terms of personal testimony of somebody who's been in many different areas of policing at a very interesting time in our history. And as well, your um, your approach, your information and your analysis of the whole policing and politics area is, for somebody like me anyway, I find it very interesting. A question of honour, politics and policing, the inside story is named John O'Brien, the author. And as I say, for the moment, under the constraints we're on, under, it's mainly available on John's website, which is www.contrarian.ie. John, thank you very much for joining us today. Make my pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. I'd also like to thank JJ Vernon on sound. Thank you for listening, folks. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, all the usual platforms. Please let me know what you think at mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on the Twitter machine at, at mickcliff. See you soon, folks.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.